Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Yeah, okay. Rough crowd. Thanks. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here at Frontline and really, really gr uh, grateful and glad to open up the Bible with you today. Uh, listen, if, if you're here today and you are, you're praying maybe for the city, but you yourself are someone that's experiencing the pain of addiction. Uh, you, you haven't talked to anybody, you haven't let anybody know, or maybe only a few people around you know this, and you feel like you're drowning, man, I, I can't urge you enough to talk to these guys after the service, please. Lance and his crew, they're trustworthy people, and honestly, man, he's doing some of the best work in our city, and actually, when it comes to this particular issue, he is doing the best work in our city that I've personally ever seen, and so I just want to encourage you, it's a safe place, they will help you, they will get you the resources that you need, so if it's alcohol or or drug addiction, or something like that, man, just, just today's the day that you can step out and get some help. So talk to those guys. Dude, thank you guys for coming. Can we give them a hand one more time to have them? Man, so respect you guys, love you guys. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and go to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 is where we're gonna be. And uh, it's not cheating to go to the table of contents and get the page number because this one's a little bit hard to find. So Jeremiah 29 is where we're gonna be. And while you're turning there, I wanna say a few things. Man, Frontline's not just a church for Christians. It's a church for people that are doubters or skeptics or uh, don't believe some of the claims of Christianity. But maybe you're wrestling. So if that's you, man, don't wrestle in isolation, but wrestle with us. We want to be brought into that conversation, and there's nothing that you're going to say or ask that's going to be weird or offensive. Uh, we'd love to process with you. Uh, today's going to be a little bit different. Before we kick off our new series next week, A Sacred Life, what we're going to do today is just to take some time and kind of do a you are here moment for the life of our church. What I want to do is just kind of share some vision for, uh, for, for you as, as we as your pastors have been praying and seeking God and asking what, what does the fall look like for Frontline? What does 2019 look like for Frontline? I want to kind of let you into that conversation a little bit and kind of tell you where we're headed as a church. And, and here's how I want to explain explain it. I want to explain it like this. When, when I first got married, I really struggled adjusting to my new normal. I really struggled. I, I was great at having roommates. I kind of was a phenomenal roommate, not to brag, but just great at it. I kind of let them do their thing and I did my thing and didn't really bother them. But I took that same mentality into the first year of my marriage, which by the way, doesn't make for a good marriage when you treat your spouse like a roommate and you don't connect on a heart level and there's no face-to-face -face deep interaction. Uh, we were great at shoulder to shoulder, but I just struggled adjusting to my new normal in marriage. And it took years for me to really figure out how to not treat my spouse like my roommate. And, and I say that to say that I think as humans, we all struggle, don't we, to adjust to our new normal. When things in our life shift or change, we, we have a hard time sometimes noticing how they've changed and then knowing how to step in and adjust to that new normal. And that, what I just said, is in many ways a parable of the church in this cultural moment in Oklahoma. That the culture around us has adjusted and changed, but the church hasn't known how to adjust to that new normal, and we haven't uh, figured out all the different nuances and complexities of this current culture, and so we're still treating, in many ways, the culture around us like we did 30, 40, 50 years ago, and things are not as they were 30, 40 50 years ago. So what has shifted? What has changed in our culture? Well, in many ways, we're kind of driving around Oklahoma City with a map from like 1940 or 1950. And you might be able to find some places. You might be able to get to downtown OKC. But there's all this development and this 
change that's happened that doesn't show up on a map from the 40s or 50s. And that is our cultural landscape right now, not just in Oklahoma, but in our region in the United States. So let me give you two ways I think that culture has changed that we need to respond to and lean into. Here's the first. Uh, Christianity on a national level has moved from the center to the fringe, from the center to the fringe. L- let me explain what I mean by that. Um, there was a day and there was a time where being a Christian and having public faith was welcomed and it was respected and it was appreciated, but now the only type of faith that's welcomed is private faith. So you can still believe in Jesus and you can still have private faith, but don't expect to take that private faith and then somehow bring it into the public sphere. It's no longer acceptable or respected It has to be private. And and an example of this was really clear in the most recent 2016 presidential election. There was a high-level presidential candidate that was asked, what is your position on abortion? And this candidate, he responded like this. Personally, I'm a Catholic. I'm opposed to abortion. But publicly, I think women have the right to choose. Now, we don't need to debate the issue of abortion in this particular talk. That's not what this is about. But what's interesting and fascinating about that response is that it's, it's actually okay to believe one thing privately, but don't expect to then take that private set of beliefs and bring it into the public sphere. If you do that, it's unacceptable, and now you're just leg- legislating morality. So it's okay to believe that. Just don't expect to then somehow pass any sort of laws that line up with what you ethically believe. And so let me just say this, like I think all of you as Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, and and I know that not all of you are, but those of you that are followers of Jesus, I think you feel this on a profoundly personal level in your day-to-day life. So just think about this. If someone that you work with were to ask you, hey, um, what's your position on gay marriage? Do you know the tension in your soul that you automatically start to feel? Or if someone said, hey, what's Frontline's position on transgender bathrooms? Uh, If you're anything like me, the thing that my head goes to immediately is, how do I respond to this person in a way that that, uh, is, is actually being faithful to the historic teachings of Jesus Christ, and yet doesn't make them think that I'm some bigot from the 1800s that hates them? How do I do that? How do I stay faithful to Jesus and his teachings, while also not looking like some, some idiot that just hasn't caught up with the times. How do we do that? And by the way, if you feel no tension in your chest when someone asks you some of these nuanced cultural issues, then you've just totally disengaged culture altogether. You've completely given up, and now you've just got the Netflix queue going on, and you're just working through those shows, and, and you're totally disconnected from what's actually happening around you in terms of the mission of God. So that's the first thing that's happened is that Christianity in many ways has moved from the center to the fringe. That's that's new. Here's the second thing that's happened, that culture is having a corrosive and colonizing effect on the life of the church. Here's what I mean. Um, If you've been around Frontline for any length of time, one of the things that we love to talk about is the six days between Sundays. The six days between Sundays. It's not our vision to get a bunch of people on a Sunday morning sitting in the chairs so that we can count up all the faces and names and know, oh, look, the church is growing and that's great. That's not what we're trying to do here. What we're trying to do is to establish gospel communities that love God and love people and push back darkness. And that requires you living on 
you living on mission inside of community in the six days between Sundays. And so that's a big deal for us. But I, I, I think as much as we've emphasized mission and you going out into our city, one of the things that I don't think we've quite accounted for as your pastors is the rapid and profound ability of culture itself to shape you and form you and dictate the, the various things that you love and your own vision of what the good life is all about. I don't think that we've actually accounted for the ability of culture to do that. So everywhere from the rise of uh, the internet to explosive growth of technology, social media, the 24 new hours, the 24 hour news cycle, um, and all the ways that we're exposed to what's happening culturally, just the, the highly polarized and politicized world that we live in, the, the, the various climate, all, the, all these things that are taking place around us culturally, I think are having a profound effect on the life of Christians in Oklahoma to where instead of us saying, hey, go out and disciple, go out and evangelize, what's actually happened is as we've sent you out on mission, the world has evangelized you. And culture has discipled you. And instead of you going out and, and telling people about Jesus, the world in many ways has told you the vision of the good life. And you've bought that. And we've bought that as a culture. And now there's very little difference between someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus and someone who doesn't in Oklahoma. Very little difference. And I think that's a profound change that culture is having this shaping formative effect on you. And so here we are trying to like, hey, let's do mission. Let's go do discipleship. Let's go, let's go see people reach for Jesus. And what's actually happened is that the church has become more like the world and the world is still in darkness. So what do we do with this? And why am I telling you all of this? Well, here's why. Because Frontline Church exists to multiply gospel communities that love God and love people and push back darkness. You see, we don't have the freedom or the, the option or the right to just back away from culture and disengage and, and throw up our hands in a frenzy so overwhelmed at what's, what's happening around us that, that we don't actually engage the darkness in our city. We don't get that option. We, as it says on our sign when you pulled in, we exist to be a church for the city. That's at the core of who we are. That's what we're about. That's what we want. And, and, and I love these words of Jesus. We wholeheartedly believe these words in Matthew 16. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail. Uh, gates, if you don't know, gates are not an offensive weapon, right? Gates are a defensive posture meant to keep people out. And so, like, have you ever seen someone attacked with a gate? Someone's like, oh, I'm going to get you with this giant gate. No, gates exist to keep people out. And, and implicit in what Jesus is saying in this text is that I'm going to build my church and you, as in us in this room, you're going to be storming the darkness. You're actually going to be going on an offensive mission in the face of the darkness. And guess what? Not even the gates of hell will be able to prevail against you. So the church is inherently supposed to be on mission, not moving away from the darkness, not being freaked out by culture, not being overwhelmed. Oh my gosh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. What do we do? No, Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail as we go out into the city to push back the darkness. This is a big deal for us. So how do we do it? How do we faithfully live as a multiplying gospel community that really does love God and love people and push back darkness inside of this really complex, nuanced, difficult culture? How do we do that? 
Well, that's what today's all about. And that's why I want to take you to Jeremiah 29, because Jeremiah 29 is one of the most profound passages that if you will allow this to sink into your soul, this is going to give you some handles for how to engage our culture. So Jeremiah 29, let me pick it up in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king of Babylon, the most powerful empire on the planet, whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So let me just give you some historical context before we read any further so that you get a grid for what's happening as Jeremiah the prophet is writing to the people of God. Uh, In 597 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of Babylon, the most powerful ruler on the planet, he moves into Jerusalem and he attacks the city. He burns down a big portion of the city. He destroys parts of the temple and the surrounding walls. And then he grabs a group of Israelites, the people of God, and he brings them as captives into exile into Babylon. And here's what's so crazy about this. This culture, just put yourself in in their shoes for just a minute. The people of Israel wake up and one day they were in Jerusalem where you have the temple and and they they knew how to worship God and, and everybody around them was a part of this covenant people of God identity and they had the Torah and all these things and so they wake up one day with that reality and then the next day many of them, thousands and thousands and thousands of them wake up and they're captives, they're in exile in a foreign land with a foreign culture and a foreign king worshiping foreign gods. And you got to just imagine this must have been profoundly disorienting and confusing for the people of God. They were confused. How do we now live as the unique people of God in this culture? How do we now live? And here's what's even more fascinating. Babylon is not some just neutral culture. That if you read Genesis to Revelation, Babylon in the Bible is really painted as everything that stands in opposition to God. Babylon is like everything that God loves. Well, yeah, we're against all of that. And we're going to worship these other gods and we're going to live this way. And they were profoundly violent. They were completely immoral. It was a very, very broken, messed up, violent culture. And they were absolutely opposed to everything that God stood for. So now here you are, the people of Israel, and you wake up in this harsh, painful culture that wants to actively form you and deform all of these other identities as the people of God into Babylonians. So there there are three main voices that were happening at this time, three main voices that the people of Israel were having to interact with and wrestle with. Here's the very first one. The first one was the voice of the Babylonians. And the message that they were saying was, we want you to be of the city. Be of the city. Become just like us. In fact, the Babylonians had a concerted, intentional effort to take people from Israel and form and shape them to be not like the people of God anymore and now to resemble the people of Babylon. What King Nebuchadnezzar did was brilliant. He grabbed a bunch of formidable teenagers. He found the, the, the intelligent teenagers, the handsome, young, strong, wise teenagers that would make great leaders. And what he did is he actively tried to shape and form their identity to become more like Babylonians than the people of Israel. Uh, th- this would be young men like Daniel and other men like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What he did is he took these guys and he actually changed their names. So he took, you're no longer going to be known as 
as names of Israelites. Now I'm going to give you pagan names. So on a foundational identity, their very core identity of their name was your, your pagans now. And so Daniel became Belteshazzar. Hananiah became, you'll know this, Shadrach and his other buddies. Mishael became Meshach. Azariah became Abednego. Some of you are like, oh, I didn't even know they had other names. Yeah, those are pagan names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, were names given to them by King Nebuchadnezzar. And then he changed their dietary restrictions. So no longer are you going to eat like the special chosen people of God. You're not going to eat like that. Now you're going to eat what we eat. And then he changed their language. Don't talk like this, talk like this. And then he changed their pagan literature. Don't, don't read these books. Don't read the Torah. Now you're going to read our literature. And then what he did is he gave all these young leaders positions of power and influence in Babylon with the assumption that they would now worship pagan gods like Babylonians. So this is the, 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 the formative power of the Babylonians' culture. And in short, the message of the Babylonians was, hey, people of God, don't become the people of God. Don't function like that anymore. Become like us. Be of the city. Talk like us. Drink like us. Look like us. Act like us. Live like us. And worship the gods that we worship. So that's one message that was coming to the people of Israel. Now here's the other message, and this is on the polar opposite side. This was coming from the prophets in Israel. And this is actually the false prophets in Israel. And what they were saying is, hey, Babylon is so bad, God doesn't even want us here. In fact, it's only going to be a matter of time. He's going to rescue us out of this hellhole. We won't have to be here for much longer. So just kind of buckle down and, 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 you know, build your walls and hide out and be against the city. Because this is an evil city. God hates the Babylonians. He hates this place. These people hate God. So let's just tuck our heads low and let's just wait for rescue. And so these prophets were telling the people of God, yeah, don't get comfortable. It's not a big deal. God's going to get us out of here. Be against this evil, violent, wicked city. And in the middle of these two voices, there's another voice that was coming to the people of God that I think is going to give us a handle on how you and I should live. And this is coming from God himself. This is the voice of God, not the Babylonians, not the prophets. This is God speaking through his prophet Jeremiah. So look at verse four. Let me read it to you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And then look at this. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So you have the Babylonians and they're saying, be, be, be of us, be of the city. Look like us, think like us, talk like us. You have the, the false prophets of Israel writing and they're saying, no, 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 it's fine. God's gonna get us out of here. Be against the city. And so here the, the people of Israel, they're waiting for God to speak. And Jeremiah the prophet comes and he's like, God has spoken to me and, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna tell you how we should live now. And what he says is shocking. It's, hey, get comfortable. Build houses, get married, Give your sons and daughters in marriage, multiply, seek the welfare of the city because I'm the one that actually sent you into this heart of the beast, Babylon. I'm the one that sent you there. So the message of God is be for the city. 
Now, this is incredible, and if you can grab a hold of this, this is going to give you some handles for how you and I should live culturally in this complicated moment. And I think what I want you to see is that we don't want to be a church that's of the city, and we don't want to be a church that's against the city, but we want to be a church by the grace and power of God that is for the city. That's our hope, and that's our vision. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be for the city? Well, there's a few things that I want to just pull out for you real quickly that I think will be helpful. Here's the first one. I think that you and I need to recover a vision for becoming a gospel community. We need to recover a vision for becoming a gospel community. Here's what I mean. Um, This identity of being a gospel community needs to absolutely be grabbed a hold of again because in many ways the church in Oklahoma has lost their gospel identity. If if you go back 30, 40, probably 50 years, uh, the the primary struggle of the church, from my perspective, as I've thought about the struggle of the church and maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago, was the struggle of relevance. Some of you were in church at that time 30, 40, 50 years ago, and I just want you to remember how absolutely disconnected from culture in many ways what was happening in the church. I mean, I remember even in the early 90s, um, you would come into church and you would be singing songs and you're doing hand motions with the songs. Does anybody remember doing hand motions to songs in church? No? Okay, great. That's, you, if you miss that part of church life, then you have, you have not missed out on anything. But can you imagine if you're not a follower of Jesus and you walk into church, you're like, what are these yohus doing? They're like doing hand weird, you know, dances to the songs. And like, what is that, right? That is ridiculous. And, and that was the way church was. It was just so completely disconnected from culture whatsoever. The struggle was a struggle of relevance. In fact, even people in the pews were so disconnected from culture that the struggle really was like, man, stop speaking Christianese, stop being weird. Like the struggle really was, let's just try to show the world that we're somewhat normal, that we're not weird, that we're not, you know, have you seen the Jehovah's Witness or the the Mormon commercials? I don't know which one it is, but it's like, I skydive and I collect stamps and I love to hunt and shoot fish and, you know, whatever, shoot fish, that's weird. Um... It's a, it's a thing, actually. Spear fishing is a thing. So, um, and, I, and they go about all these random things that they do. And then at the end of the commercial, you're like, oh, that's weird. That's the very end of the commercial is like, and I'm a Mormon. And you're like, oh, so the whole point of your commercial is just to try to not help, help me be freaked out by the fact that you're a Mormon. I'm normal too. I'm just like you. And in many ways, the struggle of the church, that was the primary mission 30, 40, 50 years ago. Hey, we're just like you too. We have tattoos. Hey, we're just like you. Like, we watch Netflix and, oh, that show? Yeah, I've seen that show too. We're normal too. We're just like you. We talk like you. We eat like you. We drink like you. We watch the things that you watch. We do the things that you do. We're just like you. We're normal too. Give us a chance. And I think that what's happened actually now is the struggle in 2018 is very, very, very different. Because instead of the primary issue needing to be one of relevance, the primary struggle for us in terms of mission is the struggle for gospel resilience. We have done such a good job of showing the world that we're just like them that, guess what, we become just like them. And we no longer have anything beautiful or special or intriguing to offer the world that's in darkness because the church is now in darkness itself. 
And this is what's happened. And so what, what's happened to me as a pastor is I've interacted with people in Oklahoma for the last 11 years trying to do gospel ministry in Oklahoma, which is not easy, is I, I, I just discovered this reality that almost everybody here considers themselves to be followers of Jesus. Almost everybody here, yes, we have atheists and skeptics and doubters, and I'm actually really grateful for that, but, but a lot of people think, no, I'm totally fine. I've got Jesus. I've got the gospel. I don't need that. But when you dig into their life and you do a deep dive, to how they see the world and their vision of the good life, it looks way more like the vision of the good life that the world offers than it does the way of Jesus. Way different than the way of Jesus. Christians in Oklahoma are more marked by busyness than they are by peaceful presence. We're more marked by isolation than we are by community, by greed rather than generosity. Sexual immorality is basically as rampant in the church as it is in the world. We're not marked by sexual purity anymore. Um, we do a great job of submitting to the God of self, but we really struggle submitting our entire lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. One that's just blown me away is even in the, the last election and everything that's happened since is the polarized way that our culture is. We've now adopted the way of the world when it comes to hating our enemies and vilifying those that stand against us. And we've lost the ability to no longer walk in bitterness to no longer walk in unforgiveness or resentment. Instead of being marked by people who love their enemies, we carry all of this unforgiveness and resentment and bitterness in our souls. We're uncritical partakers of culture rather than unique witnesses to the culture of the way of Jesus. And I think the struggle for us is no longer, hey guys, we're really cool too. The struggle now needs to be, no, we're actually different by the grace of God than you. We're actually different by his grace. We need to recover what it means to, listen to this, to be a gospel community. A gospel community is a community of people that are shaped and formed by the teachings of Jesus more than the world. A gospel community is a community formed by the, the work of Jesus in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. A gospel community is a community formed by the person of Jesus Christ as king over every voice and over every ideology and over every thought process. A gospel community is one that submits their entire lives to him and that needs to be recovered if we're gonna have anything countercultural and beautiful to offer the world. I, I'm reading through the, the, the I've, I just read through the Old Testament through this lens and I'm reading back through the New Testament with this lens and I just wanna quote some of these passages and listen to what they're emphasizing in the first century as Christians inside of a hostile culture and I think it resonates with us today. First Peter 2, beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles. And some of you need to embrace that. You are an exile. You live in a foreign, complicated culture. If you are a follower of Jesus, you've kind of left your other identities behind and your new identity is sojourner and exile in this world. I, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And then look at this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That's just, he, he's not talking about real Gentiles, non-Jewish people. He's talking about the pagan world. Keep your conduct among the pagan world honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's another one. Jesus in Matthew 5, he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus' vision for his people is to, to be seen in the city for our good works, to actually be a unique, separate, different counterculture that's marked by his gospel. Ephesians 2, some of you are like, oh, this sounds like moralism. Where's the grace of God? Well, listen to Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Christianity is a message of grace to people who don't deserve it. But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, we have to be people that don't just love the gospel in the terms of I was dead and now I'm alive and I was lost and now I'm found and I was far from God and now he loves me. We have to love the gospel in such a way that it actually shapes the way that we live in this world as unique countercultural people. That's what we need in this moment. Man, my prayer for you, my prayer for our church is that going into 2018 and kicking off in 2019, we are more marked by the fruit of the Spirit than we are by the works of the flesh. That's one of the most significant things you could do for the mission in Oklahoma. That we are more marked by the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most subversive things that I have ever read in my life, where Jesus takes all the stuff that I've just grown up thinking and he flips it on his head and he teaches a very different ethic on all things about life, from sexuality to money to marriage, the whole thing. You and I need to be people that are shaped and formed by Jesus and his gospel. It's one of the primary ways that the early church grew so rapidly. It wasn't just in the message that they preached. It was in the lifestyle that they lived. It was so different and so unique. Friends, if we're gonna push back darkness in our city, we need by the grace of God for darkness to be pushed out of our own hearts. That's what we need. Any uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer fans out there? Some of you, if you've never read Dietrich Bonhoeffer, do yourself a favor, uh, pick up Life Together. Chapter one is brilliant. Chapter two is okay. The rest are actually pretty terrible. Um, not terrible in content, just they're, they're really boring. Um, but chapter one, great first strong chapter of Life Together. And in Life Together, it's actually a book written about an alternative community that Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, tried to create. And this is so fascinating. He's famous in many ways for uh, being assassinated, being put to death by the, the Third Reich, the, the German Empire at the time. And what Diedrich Bonhoeffer's vision was, was to subvert the Nazi Empire, the, the Third Reich, by training up gospel ministers that were going to live such a unique countercultural way that would actually have a subversive effect on the entire Nazi regime. Think about that. So what he did is he created uh, something called Finkenwald. Finkenwald is an alternative community of people that were living different. The church, in many ways, uh, during World War II, started to look more like Nazi Germany than it did the unique people of God. So he grabbed some people and they bought a house by the river and he established these really, really unique rhythms that everybody was going to live off of and everybody was going to, to interact with. So they would get up really early every day and for an hour they would have just silent prayer before God. And then they would open up the Bibles together and they would read the Bible and they would talk about it and then they would fast together and, and then they'd have more times of prayer then they'd eat lunch together and, and then in, in, the, in the evenings they would sit down together and have dinner and discuss culture and art and music and all these things and, and, and it was just a fascinating, fascinating thing that he was trying to form this alternative community. 
Well, one of his friends heard about it and thought, oh, that's really intriguing. So he went to go visit Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And what he saw, he spent a day with him. And what he saw was like, man, this is a little weird. Like, you're a little over the top on all of this stuff. And, and word was actually getting out that Dietrich Bonhoeffer had just gotten weird and jumped the rails and was getting very serious about this Christianity stuff. So his buddy comes to him and he's like, hey, man, like, why are you doing this? This is over the top. This is weird. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he gets his friend inside of a rowboat. They get in the river, and he used to be a rower. They row across the river to the other side. They climb up a hill together, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer shows this guy a Nazi training camp. It's men there training to be soldiers in the Nazi army. And what he does is he looks at his friend, and he points back to Finkenwald, and he says, this has got to be stronger than that. This has got to be stronger than that. And I just want to say to you as one of your pastors that this has got to be stronger than that. If we are going to have anything beautiful to offer our city, this has got to be stronger than that. We don't just need something to say to the world. We do need something to say, but we also need a life to say it from. And that is our vision as we go into the fall in terms of our preaching calendar, what we're doing. We're trying to shape you and form you because the world is doing it. We're trying to shape you and form you to look more like a follower of Jesus that adheres to his teachings than you do to the teachings of our culture. So that's number one. That was a really long point. So thank you for sticking in. I belabored that one. You're welcome. Here's, uh, here's the second thing and I'll, I'll be brief. Not only do we need to recover uh, our identity as a unique gospel community, but we need to also recover a vision for pushing back the darkness in our world. In verse seven of Jeremiah 29, he says, but seek the welfare of the city into which I have sent you as exiles, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of the city. That word welfare in Hebrew is the Hebrew word shalom, and it means peace, but it doesn't just mean peace in the way we might think of peace. It's this profound peace. It's, it's, it's the type of peace that existed in the world before sin entered it. Like if you describe the Garden of Eden, the best word you could use is shalom, where everything is right with God and everything is right with humanity and, and relationships and there isn't brokenness and there isn't sin and there isn't stuff going wrong in the world that shouldn't be there. All is shalom, the way God intended things to be. And this is fascinating. God is writing through the prophet Jeremiah to his people and he says, hey, I've sent you into the city and what I want you to do is seek the shalom of Babylon. Babylon, the most God-hating empire on the, on the planet. The, the, the people that wanted nothing to do with God, the people that actively hated everything that God stood for, God says, seek the welfare of the city. Seek their shalom. In other words, people of God, look around you and find anything and everything that doesn't line up with how I intended the world to be and fix it. Find every bit of brokenness you can find, every bit of, uh, of the world that's marred by the curse and fix it. I want you to step in and I want you to seek the shalom of the city. This is bizarre, isn't it? And God is now writing to the church and he's saying, church, I've sent you into the city. Seek the shalom of the city into which I've sent you into. 
Some of you need to hear this. Maybe you're in college and you kind of think of your life in Oklahoma as temporary and you're like, I want to get out of here. As soon as I graduate, I'm done. I'm out. I'm going to get to somewhere where there's mountains and ocean and better culture, you know. Um, And forget you, by the way, if that's you, because we have great culture here. Um, Great culture in Oklahoma. Great food. Great food scene in Oklahoma. But uh, you're just like, man, I'm here for a moment and then I'm going to leave and get out of here as quickly as I can. Or maybe you're not in college. Maybe that's just your general take on Oklahoma. It's like, ugh, don't really want to be here. Or maybe it's not Oklahoma in general. Maybe you love the city, but maybe it's your, it's your neighborhood. You don't like your neighborhood. You don't like where you live. Or maybe it's your job. You're like, oh, I hate my job. By the way, that's why they pay you money because no one really, truly loves their job. You do it so that you can get paid. Um, and, And so whatever it might be, but you're living in this almost temporary frustration and one day I'll get out of a job or out of this neighborhood or into this city or out of this state and things will be better. And I just need you to hear this. If you're gonna be faithful as the people of God, you've got to just realize that where you are is where God has sovereignty put you. And he didn't make a mistake. He, he picked this specific culture and this specific time frame. He knew when you were going to be born and when you were going to be, uh, when you were going to no longer live. And he placed you here. And he said, this is where you're going to be. This job, this home, this neighborhood, this place. Now be where you are. And I just need you to hear this. Like some of you, the reason why you're, you're not able to be faithful on the mission of God is because you're living in frustration about uh, all the things that are going on in your world. But God has placed you in your version of Babylon, not because he wants you to live on a perpetual vacation. That's not what he's worried about. He wants you to seek the welfare of this place, this city, South OKC, Moore, Norman, your neighborhood, your workplace, your university, where you live, where you play. You are to open up your eyes and open up your heart and see what God sees and feel what God feels and notice what's broken and notice what shouldn't exist but does because of sin. And you are supposed to step in with the power and grace of Jesus and actually work for its shalom. It's flourishing, it's thriving, it's peace. Guys, there is so much brokenness in Oklahoma. I don't know if you caught this, but Lance told us earlier there were 300,000, there's 300,000 addicts in our state. 300,000 addicts. Some of you, you know them, you work with them. They're your friends, they're your family. There are 9,600 kids in foster care. 9,600 kids. And by the way, can I just point out the fact that that's not a lot how many Christians are there in Oklahoma? And it's, it's mind-blowing that there's 9,600 kids, young kids and teenagers that need a family, and there's all these Christians, but, but it's okay because we've caught up on our Netflix queue. Like this is, and I'm talking to my own heart here. I'm not judging you. I'm actually saying this is, there's something off and broken when we think that God actually wants us to live in perpetual vacation when actually we're inside of Babylon and there's brokenness all around us and he sent us here as the unique people of God not to be the answer, but man, many of us have been changed by the one who is. Many of us have experienced his grace. It's not just enough to have a message on our lips, but to have a lifestyle where we come in and we say, what, what do you need? My money's yours. My time is yours. My stuff is yours. My what? The, I, I'm here to seek the welfare of the city. That's why God has sent me. This is our vision for what it is to be a church for the city. And guys, you don't have to be brilliant to do this. You don't have to be as brilliant or as handsome as Lance Lang and start some amazing nonprofit. You don't have to do that. All you need to do is do what he did, which is he opened up his eyes and he saw brokenness 
and he did what he could. Open up your eyes, see the brokenness, and with God's help, do what you can do. This is why we have city partnerships like Hope is Alive, because they know how to help addicts better than we do. This is why we work with Serve More, because there are people in our, in our city and in our state that need their homes rebuilt and need, need help and are living in poverty, and Serve More exists to, to, to push back the darkness of that. This is why we do stuff with the Oklahoma Food Resource Center because there are, contrary to what you might think, people in our state that need food and are hungry and living below the poverty level. And so that's why we work with the Oklahoma Food Resource Center. This is why Sean, Pastor Sean started these missional grants, these pushback darkness grants, so that you could apply for money that the church would give you, and, and then you could take that money and just go do something to, to bless and serve our city and push back the darkness and to, to, to pour into people that need to be poured into. This is why we do this. So man, just like come grab us, talk to us, jump in a community group and grab people along and say, there's darkness here, let's by God's grace, let's go push it back. There's brokenness here. Man, there's people that are far from God over there. What would it look like to just go love them like crazy and serve them like crazy and tell them about Jesus? That's why we exist. So listen, if you just want to show up on a Sunday and just kind of consume and grab and not be involved in a gospel community and not push back the darkness and you're a follower of Jesus, there's like seven or eight other churches in our state that would love to have you. And they would welcome you. But man, if you're going to be at Frontline, this is what we are about. This is what we have to do. If we're going to do anything that makes sense for the kingdom in the fall and going into 2019. Does this make sense? Okay. Let me close it like this. The last thing, and this won't be on the screen, the last thing that we need is not just a recovery of a unique gospel identity that's countercultural. It's not just this recovery of really pushing back the darkness and not just having that as a statement, but what we need is a vision for the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Friends, Jeremiah 29, verse seven, it says, seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf. We would be at the height of foolishness if we thought that with our own brilliance and our own strength and our own power and our own ideas and gifting and our own money and resources that we could see all the problems in Oklahoma and we could step in to fix them. That would be crazy. There are things that are existing in our city that only the power of the spirit can have any real effect on. There are things in our city that are so far beyond broken that we don't even have the wisdom to know how to fix it. And so what we have to do is not just be a people that, that's working with our hands for the shalom of the city, but we have to be a people that is crying out to God for his help and for his grace and for his wisdom and for his power to carry the mission forward. So I'm, I'm just captivated by Jesus' vision that he gives his disciples in Luke 24 when he grabs them together. And this is post the resurrection. So imagine like the resurrected Jesus standing before you and he says, friends, I want you to go into the world as my witnesses. Tell everybody about me. Share the good news with everybody. Go make disciples. And then he says this, but wait. Why? Wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. See, we need power to carry out the mission that God has given us. Like, imagine if the Apostle Peter tried to do this on his own. And I just want to say, like, if Peter
Peter, the apostle Peter, needed the empowering presence of the Spirit to carry out the mission. Who's to think that you don't need that? If guys like James, the brother of Jesus, and John, who is called the, the beloved disciple, if these guys needed the power and presence of the Spirit, man, you do too, and I do too. And so this isn't just a message of, hey, do more, try harder, let's go fix all the problems. This is a message of King Jesus, you have sent us into the city for its welfare, for its shalom. We're gonna pray to you on its behalf. We're gonna ask that you open up our eyes and open up our heart and give us a capacity to feel and to be broken over what you're broken for and help us know how to step in and help us know how to fight for the welfare of this city. Pushing back the darkness. That's what we need.